You're listening to the Forefront Church Podcast in New York City, where our vision is to see lives, neighborhoods, and our city renewed through Jesus. Hey, we're going to be looking at a couple of verses today before we jump in. Um, I've got this quote from Richard Rohr, who's one of my favorite uh, thought leaders and spiritual teachers in the world. And he, uh, in, a, in a talk in 1992, he had this to say uh, when he was speaking on the Sermon on the Mount. He said, the ego, by its very definition, is conservative. And I don't mean that in political terms, all you burn baby burn <laughs> supporters in here. I don't mean that by political terms, the nature of the ego in all cultures and all times and places is to secure itself. I think that we all have at least one thing in common in the room today. We are driven by our egos. Our default setting, the default software that was uploaded to our biocomputers when we were born is to put ourselves above everything else. And I know that we don't like to think about ourselves in those terms. I don't like to think about myself in those terms, but it's true. That is our default. We are people who at our core are preoccupied with the ensuring of our own survival. We are evolutionarily wired to secure the means necessary to live as many days into the future as we possibly can. And if you don't believe me, just hang around with some toddlers. Have you ever been around toddlers? They have not learned to bite other kids who steal their toys and kid stuff. Like that's not something that they learned. There is this programmed re- understanding that scarcity is a thing and that we need to hoard and conserve ourselves and secure the means necessary for survival. I can't believe you guys didn't laugh about toddlers biting each other. That's funny. Unless it's your toddler and then you are ashamed. No matter what culture or time or place in history you look at, the structures of power and authority that we take part in are built around creating a system where the powerful can manipulate that system and the individual can acquire those means necessary to ensure its own security and survival. From food, basic needs like food and shelter, to social status, to economic security, to romantic fulfillment, or creating children to propagate our family legacy in the human race. These are all things that we will do just because we are driven by our ego. Self-preservation is the human nature's greatest desire. Would you agree on some levels? Has anyone else ever experienced anything like that? The thing that we hunger and that we thirst for more than any other thing is security. So what I end up doing and what I think a lot of us probably, if we're honest, end up doing is we end up spending our entire lives observing everything through the lens of what can this do for me? We do that with our jobs. We do that with with culture. We do that with our relationships if we're not careful. And we even do that with our faith and with our religion. How can I capitalize on this thing, on this system, on this person on this, on this list of beliefs in order to satisfy the desire of my ego. And now the ego isn't completely bad, right? It helps us survive. It helps us, helps us get through trauma. It helps us secure the things that we need for, for basic survival and to provide for our family and for our relationships. I mean, after all, we can't make this world a better place for Jesus if we're dead, right? But living an entirely self-focused life is not living life to the fullest, And Jesus, this manifestation of God in flesh, came in order that we can see what is living life to the fullest. 
And I believe that that is the reason why in his first major sermon, he preaches the Beatitudes, which in my opinion is the spot in the lake of the gospels where you can see all the way down to the bottom. I mean, Jesus is always speaking in these cryptic parables where people are scratching their heads and wondering what the heck is going on. And all, all throughout all of the gospels, he's, he's teaching these rich and diverse and, and super hard to understand mysterious truths. But then in the Beatitudes, he speaks directly to the heart of his overarching agenda. Clearly, in order to show us what is living life to the fullest. Now we're gonna look at a couple of Beatitudes specifically, but first I wanna rewind just a little bit and go back to Matthew chapter four, verses 17. And this is right at the beginning of Jesus's ministry, right after his baptism. And he goes, and it says, from that time, Jesus began to preach this message. And the message that he began to preach is summarized with this one sentence. Repent or change your perception, change the way that you think, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven, which is Matthew's really Jewish way of saying the kingdom of God. He's writing to a Jewish audience. The kingdom of heaven is near. Now, why is that important? I think it's because the way that the easiest way for us to approach the Beatitudes is the way that we approach everything else in life if we're not careful. If we default to our, uh, our ego-driven software that was uploaded upon our birth and we look at this list of things, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they will be satisfied. And we read this list and it goes on and we think to ourselves, okay, this is God providing me with a list of instructions that I can manipulate for my own survival. If I want to be blessed, then this is what I have to do. If I want to inherit the earth, then I must first become meek. If I want to be satisfied, then I need to be righteous. And if we do that, we miss the entire point of what Jesus is offering us as a way of life. There are these two different words in the New Testament for blessed, this word that we find here. Um, and I think Jonathan might've talked about this, but I think Jonathan majored in like psychology or something, not Greek. So um, what the one word that is in the New Testament that's used for blessed is, uh, we've got a slide up here, is uh, eulogio, which is from the root word logos, which means the word. And what it literally means is to speak well of something or someone or to call down a blessing upon someone. So it's this verb that is uh, indicating something that's going to happen or something that uh, you can do for someone else to speak well of someone. The other word for blessed is makarios. Now this is the word that's used in the Beatitudes and it's important that we make that distinction because makarios isn't a term for something that you do. Makarios is this term that recognizes an existing state of favor or good fortune, which is already present. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of heaven is near. Are you tracking with me? So do we see the difference in the way that we are programmed to approach the Beatitudes and the way that we actually should approach the Beatitudes? 
This isn't a list of things that we can manipulate in order to uh, garner favor with God or in order to put ourselves in a position of favor with God. It's not a list of things that we can do in order to inherit eternal life. It is a list of things that are already true because of God's love for us, not because of something that we can do. And so I, I think it's super interesting, especially when we look at uh, these, what we're looking at today, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. And here's my question, be honest. Do we actually believe that? Like if, if you look at what it is to be meek, this this picture that we usually get of meekness, sometimes, and I'm not doing this for the pun, you know, I hate this when people, meekness isn't weakness, guys. <laughs> but we do picture that, right? We picture like fragility. And what we actually see in Jesus's meekness is we see that Jesus presents the freedom from the ego the freedom to step into confrontation and still maintain a gentle spirit. The freedom to desire reconciliation more than we desire vindication. Like that's what we see when we see meekness. And then when we see uh, Jesus talk about those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, do we actually believe that? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are going to be satisfied or are satisfied? No, we don't believe that. The thing that brings satisfaction to us, the thing that we put our hope in to be satisfied is success and money and power and fame and sex and somebody that, get, somebody that can get us a table at Peter Luger's. Or, like, these are the things that we think are going to satisfy us. These are the things that we chase after. These are the things that we put at the top of our priority list. These are the things that we think if we acquire, then we're going to be secure. And even if we do everything that we can do in order to live a righteous life, if we do it from the vantage point of being led by our ego, then our religion just turns into another thing that we are using to satisfy our own hunger and thirst for security. Now, there's this guy in Luke 18 and Mark 10. We don't know his name. We just know him as the rich young ruler. Have you guys ever heard the story? It, this is one of my favorite stories because this is my struggle. Like my whole entire life, this has been me. The way that I came to Jesus and everything else. I'll just read it really quick. Now in Luke 18, verse 18, it says, there was a certain ruler. So this is an important guy. And he came up to Jesus and Mark's account, it says that he ran to Jesus, which would be an undignified thing for a Jewish successful rich ruler to do. He runs up to Jesus and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Are you picking up on the subtleties there? Good teacher, give me what I need. Tell me what to do. Give me a list that I can manipulate. I'm successful. I've got what it takes. I can do this. I just need you to let me know what is the secret. How can I secure eternal life for myself? And I love Jesus' response. And I think sometimes when I was younger and I would read this, I thought that Jesus was being sarcastic, but Mark's account actually says that Jesus looks at this guy and has love for him in his heart. But Jesus' response, very quickly, he recognizes that he's approaching this subject from the ego and he says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And then he says, you know the commandments. 
And Jesus is very perceptive. He's God in flesh. He can do things like this. It's like being a Jedi, but even better. He says, you shall not commit, he just starts listing off of the, he lists off all of these commandments that have to do with the way that you treat other people, which I think is interesting. Do with that what you want to. You shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony and honor your mother and father. And I can just imagine this rich young ruler perking up at the sound of this answer to his question of what must I do in order to secure eternal life for myself? What must I do to make sure that I'm okay? And he says, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. And when Jesus heard this, he said to him, but you still lack something. There's one thing that you don't have. Sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. And I don't think that Jesus is putting this guy on blast. I don't think he's trying to make him look bad in front of his peers. I don't think that he's, he's using this guy as an example. I think that this is a genuine invitation. I think that when Jesus looked at this man and loved him, he saw that he wasn't living life to the full, but that in this life where he was chasing after security, being propelled by his own ego, he was imprisoned and kept held back from what it really means to enter into the fullness of the human experience. He says, get rid of your stuff that you're putting your security in. Abandon the security that you get from the plaques that are hanging on your wall and the list of accomplishments and your religious pedigree. And then come and follow me and experience what true life actually is. Now, this is an invitation coming from a homeless man who's being followed around by 12 regular old homeless dudes who don't even like each other. And when he heard this, he became very sad, verse 23. Because why? Because he was very wealthy. Or because he was very secure in himself. He had everything that he needed. He had built his self-worth, his identity, everything that made life worth living had his name attached to it. Mark's account says he walked away despondent because he was very wealthy. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? Indeed, and this is, if you're a biblical literalist, this is where you run into problems. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Now, this is a guy, this rich young ruler is a guy who was the model citizen. There are, we have accounts of Jewish rabbis from this time period who would walk around town chanting in the mornings a prayer to God that said, thank you, God, that I am not a woman or a Gentile or a slave. Because God's favor, blessing, makarios, was reserved for a very small and elite group of people in this culture. Wealthy, successful, ritualistically pure Jewish men. That's this guy. And so Jesus says, how hard is it for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? All these marginalized people, these poor beggars and these hungry people and these people who are trying to be healed, who are sick, they hear God, they hear Jesus say this and they're like, well then what? We're screwed. 
How are we going to get into the kingdom of heaven? And if you were the original audience, the original Jewish audience that's reading this from Matthew, you would have had a similar thought. Or reading this from Luke, you would have had a similar thought. And so the very next, Jesus goes on to predict his death. Everybody's confused. And then he has the very next recorded interaction that he has is with a guy that could not be farther away from the rich young ruler on the spectrum of humanity in that culture. Jesus is on the road from Jerusalem to Jericho, which was like a seven mile hike. And on this road, you would have a lot of beggars who would set up because rich people from Jerusalem would have vacation homes in Jericho. And so you would hang out on this road in order to beg for money. It was probably about as lucrative as you could get for, uh, unless you're hanging out outside of the temple, um, for actually getting money from, from people. And so as Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, a blind man. So he's blind. The belief in that day would be you're blind because of either your sin or the sin of your parents, right? God's blessing is not on you. There is no favor upon you. God has abandoned you. You are not worth his time. This is the programmed belief. And so as Jesus approached Jericho, there was a blind man, uh, someone who doesn't matter, sitting by the roadside begging, someone who was completely and totally in tune with his worthlessness, with his spiritual bankruptcy. And when he heard the crowd approaching, he asked what was happening. And they, people in the, in the crowd, people in the entourage said, Jesus, the Nazarene is passing by. And immediately this guy calls out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And then he's rebuked. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him, be quiet. But then he shouted all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Do you see the juxtaposition with the two interactions? Tell me what I can do. Have mercy on me. I got nothing. Well, tell me what I can do for you. And he says, I want to see, Lord. And Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. And immediately he received his sight and what? And followed Jesus, praising God. And when the people saw it, they also praised God. And so you've got one guy walking away despondent and sad who's spiritually blind to his own poverty, a different kind of poverty. Then you've got this other guy who the conventional wisdom says, doesn't matter, isn't worth it. Who has the spiritual sight to see that his hope is placed in nothing else than crying out to Jesus, son of David, for mercy. And his sight is restored and then he becomes a disciple. There's something to this, I think. Now, how, what are the implications for us? The, impl- the implications for us are blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. That blessing, Makarios, is already yours. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is not a goal to set for 2016. What the Beatitudes actually are, are a revelation 
of a reality that we are often blinded to by our own egos. And when Jesus shows up and pulls back the curtain on reality and says, you are spiritually emaciated. But God's blessing is on you. Just wake up. Just wake up. The meek will inherit the earth. I really do believe that meekness is what we get when we transcend the ego. When we enter into the rest of what it means to be a human. When we are set free from the fear of scarcity and the self-preservation hamster wheel that all of us are running on until we are completely and totally exhausted. We are granted the freedom, the blessing of meekness. The freedom to remain gentle in the face of disagreement or even injustice. The freedom to desire restoration and reconciliation even for our enemies. When we hunger and thirst for righteousness, this becomes a community that does not have room for bitterness or resentment. We become a reflection of the manifestation of God in flesh. So that's my prayer for us today. That we will awaken that we will abandon the hope that we place in our own spiritual effort and expertise and the impressive resume of personal accomplishments and that we will embrace the reality of our own spiritual poverty, hunger, thirst, and blindness and cry out for Jesus. Son of David, have mercy on me. Let's pray.